All right, you can be seated. Everybody doing all right on this nice, cold February day? Right? This weather's amazing. It scares me for the summer, but it's, it's amazing. It's, it's good stuff. Everybody doing all right? Yeah? Okay. We might get into a little bit talking, you know, back and forth. So um, for those who haven't been here before when we do that, uh, I'm going to ask some questions, and I'll let you know if it's not rhetorical or not. Um, just to get a little interaction. We're kind of a small group, so it's kind of fun to do that and play that game. But kind of where we pick up today, where, where, the, where the text was, um, is really right after, is right where we left off last week. Okay? So for those who were here last week, um, we, we can't read, we can't dive in today's text without knowing that it is, it is threaded together, if you will, to what we talked, talked about last week. So for those who weren't, weren't here, let me give a little bit of a recap um, what we know, uh, just based off what the scripture lets us know, is that starting in chapter 12, all the way up to where Avery finished in, in chapter 13, Jesus is in the temple, right? So every conversation, uh, every example, every illustration, every argument, every what have you, that we read between 11 all the way through 12 into 13, is tied to the temple, okay? In other words, you can't you might understand a, a simple meaning or a surface meaning with what we're reading, but to get the depth of it, you have to understand the depth of what temple life is to the Jew. And this is what we, we talked about. We, in fact, we spent way too much time talking about it last week. But we talked about it to kind of set up, set up the scenario uh, to, to tie depth into it. And so what we talked about a little bit last week was that, number one, the temple life was the central element. It was, it was centrality, if you will, to the life of the Jews. It was the most important thing uh, to, a, to a Jew's life. I don't even know if there's anything that we have today that would uh, compare to the, the importance of this. Okay? So I don't know how to say You can't stress it enough, but the idea of the temple life was as important as it got to a Jew. Their identity was tied to it. Now what we learned was that the temple was not just a simple building, right? We kind of know that. But it was, it was where heaven and earth came together. It was the place that the people would come to experience and be in the presence of God. It was the place where God ruled in the lives of his people through the law, that's the next system, and through the offering and sacrifice, the other system. In other words, that the the temple was almost a shell, it was almost an umbrella for the two systems that were under it. Okay, and these systems, what I just said was the law system and the law... Whereas the temple is where heaven and earth come together. The law was given from heaven to earth to help mold, mold God's people into a people who live on earth as it is in heaven. So they would leave the temple to live their life because of the law in the way that heaven and earth came together in the temple. That's what the law was for. Okay? And then the other system was the sacrifice system. And what we talked about last week was that the, 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 the whole purpose, I guess, if you will, behind the sacrifice system was to make real for a moment the union between God and man. Because what we know, what we know, and we learned about really the first temple creation was that humanity defiled that temple and we cut, we severed our relationship with God. And so the only way that relationship is unified, union is brought back between God and man is through penalty. Something great has to pay the price to bring that together. And so this is what the sacrifice system did. It in and of itself did not make the union between God and man, but it made it real for moments. 
Are you with me? And so this is the context that uh, last week's conversation happened in. And so what we kind of said was that most of all of us, especially if you've been to A&C for a while, we all know the text, love, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbors yourself, right? We say that all the time around here. In fact, we have our summary version, love God, love neighbor. And that's what we mean. But what most of us have not thought of is that that statement is a response from Jesus to a scribe who's just been eavesdropping on an argument Jesus was in with the Sadducee about the resurrection. Okay? And so this is where we pick off. So Jesus has this conversation with the scribe that has been eavesdropping. This is the, the natural response Jesus gives him from what he has been thinking. And now it's almost Jesus now takes on a different posture than he has the entire two chapters. Now Jesus goes on the offensive. In every other conversation we've read, somebody is directing something at Jesus. They are questioning him. They are accusing him. And now Jesus turns it on them. But what we have not left, this is not a separate section. We are still in the temple. So what is still the underlying fabric to what Jesus is talking about is the idea of loving God and loving neighbor. And it's almost as if what he is saying is, okay, you guys just got this. We just talked about this. But now let me show you the opposite side of this. Let me show you the proof that the people who are in this law system, who are in this temple system, who are in this sacrifice system, no longer love God. Let me explain this to you. Let me show it to you. Because what we talked about again last week is that what the temple, the law, the sacrifice system was never meant to be ultimate. And it was never even meant to be everlasting. Right? If we go to the book of Revelation, I think it's chapter 21, what we find out is there is this great city and there's no temple inside of it. So the temple, the law, the, the sacrifice system was always supposed to be secondary. It was supposed to be signpost, pointing people to that which it represented, pointing people to God. And we said, the thing that happens when we take that which is never supposed to be ultimate and make it ultimate is it becomes tools of self, self-exaltation, self-promotion, self-protection. And the scary thing about that, especially in religious circles, is we do it all under the name of God. Right? It's almost like we're deceived into it. We use the very things God gave us that were supposed to point us to him, but now we use it to point to ourselves. Okay? And this is kind of the picture that we are getting ready to see. And so when we do that, when we begin to use the things of God to point to self instead of God, in other words, when we are not loving God with with every fiber in our being, we cannot love neighbor as ourselves. Because loving neighbor as self, loving neighbor as we love God, is dependent on loving God with every fiber in our being. Right? We become like that which we love. And so, if we love God with everything in us, what is God? He is the supreme example of sacrifice. He is the supreme example of putting others first. Right? He is the supreme example of becoming complete humility to rescue us. He is the example of loving neighbor. Okay? So when we put God first, it is only then 
that we can actually love neighbor like we're supposed to. Because if we put self first, here's the thing about self. I love me. Right? And at some time down the road, loving my neighbor in a sacrificial way, in a sacrificial way, is going to conflict with how much I love me. So my justice, if you will, will only go so far. And because I know scripture, I begin to live at odds with that. And so I have got to, in some way, figure out how to use the things of God to justify the life that I am living. That actually is against scripture. Does that make sense? Okay, so that was a really long intro to kind of where we, where we find ourselves today. So we kind of, we've, we picked up, Avery read starting in verse 38. But if you even go back to 34, what Jesus is doing to, to kind of show, to prove these people don't love me, even though they follow everything. Even though they're here in the temple, they're sacrificing in the temple. They can quote the law. They have the best theologies, right? They know their theology. They will die on every hill in that theology. But it doesn't matter. They don't love me. They don't know me. And he starts off in verse 34 when he goes on the offense using a riddle kind of from Psalms 110 to show them that they've even blurred, they've messed up their picture of who God is and therefore they can't even recognize him if he was in front of their face, which is the irony of the temple, right? They come to be in the presence of God. God shows up in the flesh and they no longer see him. They can't tell he's there. And so he starts in 34 with this riddle to show that you don't even know who God is anymore. And then when we get down into 38, God basically begins to reveal that even though they can quote the right theology, even though they, they uh, partake in the temple life, even though they follow the two systems of law and sacrifice, they no longer know him. They've used them for self. And the example he uses is that of a widow, right? And we've talked about, you guys, any of you remember what, what, what status the widow had in society? And she was as low as she could get, right? Because number one, she was, she was a woman. That was a horrible thing to be back then because your job was to produce sons and to be married. And that was, and that was it. And so he says, he basically begins to tell a story or give an example before he goes into a show and tell part of it of how these scribes, the religious elite, who, who mind you, are th- they're the ones who are assigned to be the guardians of the law, to keep it pure. They're the ones who are the guardians of the temple to make sure that purity was happening. And he says, basically, in a nutshell, that these people, these scribes, these, these uh, religious elite who, who use my name, they use everything I've given them to love neighbor, they now use it to exploit them. They now use it to be dealers of injustice. Because the actual example that he gives is the idea of what, what would happen is, um, so a widow was marginalized. She was helpless. She was impoverished. She was all these things unless she had a son and she got the estate. But based off the story that Jesus is telling us, it's probably not happening with the example he gives. Certain scribes were assigned the position to make sure that the lowest of society were never exploited. They never fell into the hands of inequality. They never had injustice pushed upon them. 
And Jesus is saying that these very people who have been given the tool, they've been given the law, they've been given the temple, they have now used it to exploit, to be dealers of injustice to the very ones they were supposed to protect and lift themselves up instead of me. In other words, the system doesn't work anymore. It's not doing what it was meant to do. St. Augustine says this. He says, Whoever therefore thinks that he understands the divine scriptures or any part of them so that it does not build the double love of God and our neighbor does not understand it at all. Whoever finds a lesson there useful to the building of charity, even though he has not said what the author may be shown to have intended in that place, has not been deceived, nor is he lying in any way. However, if he is deceived in an interpretation which builds up charity, he is deceived in the same way as a man who leaves a road by mistake, but passes through a field to the same place toward which the road itself leads. In other words, here's the deal. Here's what Jesus is saying. You can know all the right theologies. You can obey all the systems. You can check every box there is, but if it it is not creating in you a person who is submitted to community, who loves God with everything they are, and loves neighbor as themselves, It doesn't matter how many right theologies you think you know or how many texts you can quote. If it is not quote, if it is not producing in you a love for neighbor that surpasses love for self, you're wrong. And you can be the most uneducated, unreligious, unwhatever you want to put in there. But if in some way, even in your ignorance, you are turning into a person that loves God with every fiber in your being and you are loving neighbor more than you love yourself you've got something right in other words you know him more than those who can articulate it with beauty and then here's what's ironic as we move into as we move into verse 41 Jesus doesn't even need a parable right this has become so rampant he doesn't even he doesn't even need a parable he doesn't need to make anything up in fact, he just pops a squat right down there in the temple and asks, he's like, gather around. Let me show you what I mean. Let me show you what I mean. And he begins to point out this scene that's happening and probably happens quite often of this widow, right? And we just, we described what the widow is. She is the outcast, right? She's the marginalized. I mean, she's a woman who they have, which we learned, I think maybe, maybe it was last week, we learned that the scribes and the, and the Sadducees have now used the very scriptures that were meant to protect women and to give women equality. They have used them to build inequality. They have justified male superiority. I mean, so this woman's got it bad. Obviously, with the kind of money that, or lack of money that she has, she's not even done her job of producing the heir of a son. She's a 
woman who is a widow who has not done her job and probably is ignorant of the law, which just makes you pathetic. And her offering was not even worth the sweat it took to put it in the trumpets, the free will offering that she gave, because it didn't further the vision of the temple. So that's what we have going on in one corner. And in the other corner, we have the model Jews. Based off of the wording, these are probably men, if not families led by men. They are educated in the law. They get it. They know God. They know their theology. They can argue it. They wear the religious clothes. They are faithful to temple life and they are faithful to the sacrifice system because they can afford it. And they give an offering which with the way it's translated probably equals an entire year of what this woman ever brings in. So Jesus' story, his, he's, he's saying one thing and he begins to point to another and the Jews of that time would not be able to fathom that Jesus is saying the bad guy, if you will, are these model Jews. And yet he says, and this is what he says in referring to the two of them. For they all, the men, the, re, the religious elite, the ones who knew the law, the ones who practiced the sacrifices, the ones who were faithful to the temple, For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she out of her poverty has put in everything she had. All she had to live on. He points to the widow, the outcast, the the marginalized. And he says, there's your example. There's your model. Not that. Not that. Now, so here let's just talk, let's chat a little bit. Because I think... When we contextualize this to our day, I don't think this has much to do with money, honestly. I think this might show us why Jesus warns us about the grips of money. But I think it's possible to live out of poverty and still have what you have. So what do, we, what, what do you think is being talked about when he says, if we were to contextualize it, that... Um, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had. In other words, she gave out of her poverty. What do you, what do you think that means? Anybody? Think about the idea of poverty, just, just a little bit. What, what, what kind of things are involved in that? like something you need. It's really good. You have no security, especially in yourself, right? How about you have no control over your circumstances? What you have, you really want to keep. Or you should keep. How about reliance? You can't rely on yourself. You have to be completely dependent on a certain system in real poverty. Yeah? 
Anything else? Quiet. So abundance would be the opposite, wouldn't it? You don't really have to rely on anybody. You're fine. You have plenty to go around and never lack. So here's what I think Jesus was saying when he's pointing to the widow, the, the widow who is marginalized, who, who uh, is an outcast. I think the reason she's the model is because she is living her life to a point that if God fell through, so would she. And that's faith, isn't it? Isn't that what faith is? It's not some mental ascent that we have assigned it to in the West. I think it is li- living into your weakness place where you can no longer control. See, the, the scribes, the religious elite, if they woke up on one morning and God fell through, guess what they can do? They keep going on. They don't need God. God is kind of their token God. The reliance on self is great. This is Western Christianity. We, we, we can rely on self so so much that if we woke up one morning, I mean, me and Austin would be out of a job if God didn't show up. But outside of that, most of our lives would just go on fine. And I think what it means is, I wrote this down. A life lived out of poverty is a life lived into weakness. Because it is no longer within the limits of our control, strengths, and abilities. Have you thought about, oftentimes, I'm sure not you, this is probably just me and somebody else you know, that oftentimes the way we love our neighbor is limited to our own strengths, abilities, and willingness? I don't want to give too much. Just a token. And here's what God is saying, which sometimes scares me, is that's proof that you don't even know it. And then we take a weird turn. We take a weird turn in chapter 13. Jesus is leaving the temple now. He did his show and tell scene, right? Told about it. Then he showed him an example of it. And then he's like, peace out. And he gets up and he, and he goes to walk. Can you put up verse 2 on 13? Jesus said to him, the disciple who is, who, is, who is talking about how great the temple is, how magnificent. Jesus said to him, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Translation, I'm tearing this sucker down. I'm tearing it down. And then Jesus goes into this huge monologue in the rest of chapter 13 about the destruction of of everything that was central to the Jewish life. And we see it happen in 70 AD. He allows the Romans to come in and destroy it all. Now, here's my question for the day. Do you think God did this out of wrath? Oh, I hate those questions. I don't think he did. I don't think he did it out of wrath. I think he did it out of mercy. I think he did it out of a severe mercy. 
a mercy as severe as destruction and a destruction that is as merciful as love. If you look back through the entire Old Testament, God continually allows his people to be beaten, to be taken in captivity, to have things destroyed. Is he angry? Sure. But always the motivation behind it is the hopes that they will turn back to him. Always. By the time we get to Romans, we, I, I think it's in chapter 9 of Rome, no, chapter 11, I think, of Romans. Um, Paul is telling a story to the church of Rome, which is who Mark is writing to, by the way. And he says that God has basically cut the Jews off, not permanently, and he has turned to the Gentiles to bring them in. And do you know why? To make the Jews jealous. Once again, a severe mercy because he loves his people so much that he is willing to destroy anything in our lives that turn our hearts from him. Because while we are self-worshippers, he longs for us. And he knows the best life for us to live, not just after the resurrection, but the resurrection life now, is a heart that is completely turned towards him. He knows that the best answer for the marginalized, the oppressed, the broken, and the poor is a people whose lives are sold out in love to God. And in his mercy, he will destroy and tear down anything in our lives that pull us away from him so that we might turn back to him. Romans talks about another very scary reality. In, in theology, it's, it's been termed the passive wrath of God. In other words, the scariest place to be is when God sees that you continually chase something else other than him. He says, fine, I'll give you your will. He doesn't punish us. He says, I will let you go the way you want to go. I've tried to destroy it enough. And you just want you too much. And I think what we see here through all of this is starting in chapter 11, right? Do you remember what, what Jesus does before he enters the, the, te- the temple when he looks over Jerusalem? Is he angry? He weeps. His heart is broken. And he walks in and he methodically picks apart everything that was supposed to point them towards him. And he shows how that they have used it and turned it in on themselves for self-exaltation, self-protection, self-love. And instead of using these things for justice, they use it to be dealers of injustice. They use it for inequality. And God says, I love you too much to let you stay this way. So in my severe mercy, a a mercy that is severe as destruction, I'm going to tear this down in hopes that when it all crumbles, you will see me and long for me. Let's pray. Father, we are a, we are your people. We are your church. We are your nation.
And the thing you want for us more than anything, more than a big functioning expression of the church, more than wealth, is you just want us to love you with everything that we have because you know that is the best thing for us. It is in that that we find joy. It is in that that we find community. It is in that that we know love. It is in that that we understand kindness. It is in that that we know the depth of life. And in your love, that is what you want for us. And through that, you ask us to to love neighbor as self. You ask us to be dealers of justice. You ask us to squelch inequality. You, You ask us to be beacons of hope. Because you love the poor, the oppressed, the marginalized also. Father, oftentimes we set our affections and we set our aims at something that is other than you, something that is less than you. And the worst part about that is sometimes we do it unintentionally. We kind of let life just be life and we get busy and all the thing, all of a sudden we begin to start relying on things that are other than you. We rely on self, we rely on job, we rely on, and life all of a sudden becomes about us and we lose the experience and the life of joy. We lose love, we trade kindness for self-protection and self-exaltation. And so God, what I would, I would ask today, and this is kind of a, probably a weird request, but that you would turn your severe mercy on us. That you would open our eyes to the things in our lives that we love more than you, which has hindered us from loving neighbor more than we love self, or as we love self. That's not always the easiest thing to see, and it's not always the easiest thing to know. But God, in your mercy, would you reveal it to us? Would you make us a people that love you and love neighbor more? Would you make us a people that rely on you more? That depend on you more? A people who thirst to hear your voice? A people who long to be in your presence, like David said? like a deer that is exhausted, who's just longing for water. Would you make us that? Would you mold us into that towards you? Beyond the destruction of the temple, the most severe mercy you've ever shown us was your son's death. Your word says that it pleased you to crush him because of your glory and your love for us. Would you help us to not take that for granted? Would you help us to depend on that death every day? Would you help us to rely on that death every day? Would you help us see the severe mercy in that and how that was for us? We love you and we glorify you. In your name we pray, amen. Each week we close out our time in scripture with a time of response and reflection. And we do that through communion and worship. In your bulletin, I believe you have a, uh, you have a responsive reading. Um, And in a second, I'm going to ask Tommy to come up and he's going to lead us in communion today. But what's going to happen is uh, the band is going to play a little bit, but Tommy is going to lead us through this reflection and into the Lord's Supper. Whenever Tommy's done, the band will begin. And whenever you feel the time is right, we have communion stations in the back. Go to one of those stations, take the bread, dip it in the cup, remembering the mercy of God on us. And then continue to worship. Tommy.